Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Uninformed Podcast. Of course, the show that sends trivial information into your ear holes in the hope that you feel entertained and informed. I'm your host, Ethan, and I'm joined here with my courageous companion, Zach. Hey. Hey, Ethan. How's it going? I'm good, man. I'm also here with my tenacious teammate, Jared. Hey, what's up, dude? And, of course, last but not least, my bodacious buddy, Jonah. hey Heyo, indeed. So, I want to preface, I am a little bit under the weather, so if I sound like I'm sick, it's because I am sick. Uh, but anyways, we shall start. <clears throat> so, I'm going back to my standard style of topics here, science and engineering related. So, this is going to be sort of a follow-up to a previous episode I did. There'll be more treasure hunting episodes to come, but right now I want to hear what you fellers associate with these two words. Analog and digital. A clock. Okay, we got a clock. What else we got? Tish, I know you associate something with that. Yeah, I associate um, forms of music. So on how you create music, because you can use digital processing with a digital audio workspace, and then audio is with tapes and other uh, old traditional forms on how yep. you create music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys are hitting really good points here. Jared, I'm just going to let you sit back. I'm going <laughs> to just going to continue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, so you guys, yeah. Good good uh good topic so far. But as a strict definition here, analog is just something that is physically analogous. That's where the word analog comes from. It's anag- analogous to the real thing in the real world. Therefore, it can display continuous smooth information, whatever it is. Digital, on the other hand, is something that is discrete. It has a finite number of digits to display information. So, like you guys already mentioned, you can apply this to tons of different technologies, but we're going to take a look at one example in particular just to hammer this point home. And that example is clocks. Yes! So, yeah, Jonah, but Tish, I'll get to you. Um, I promise, I promise this entire episode is not going to be about clocks, but at least (laughs) this first part is. Um, Okay, so we all know analog and digital clocks, right? You guys have all seen, everyone is on the same page here, everyone knows the difference i mean they know what they look like at least yeah yes sir before i get in too much does anyone have any initial thoughts or preferences uh with analog or digital clocks uh i feel like a lot of people can't tell time with an analog clock okay yeah that's great good point tish i know you probably have some thoughts huh uh thought i feel man. like digital time is definitely more convenient but i do like having to figure it out and use my brain for the minute and the second hand um with the clock so uh, it, it is a treat to see a nice traditional old analog or grandfather clock every now yeah. and then. Tish, yeah. when you look at an analog <laughs> clock, how long does it take you to process what time it is? By the time he tells it, it's already moved. <laughs> Five minutes. No. <laughs> no, really, I learned time back when I was in fourth grade. I feel like it's, uh, no, to be honest, I think it's, uh, it doesn't take me too long usually. <laughs> it doesn't too long. That's good. That's good. <clears throat> All right. So. The thing that makes an analog clock analog is that it's analogous to the passage of time. So if twice the amount of time passed, then there's something that moved twice as far in the analog clock. Whereas with digital, there's nothing in that clock that physically moved twice as far. So it's not really an analogy for the passage of time. Um, On top of that, analog information 
like I said earlier, it's continuous. So if you zoom in on the minute hand, for instance, you can see that it's at some distance between two numbers, right? Either between two tick marks or between two numbers. And that distance is, of course, analogous to real time. You know, you're at some time and the minute hand displays it. On the other hand, pun intended, no matter how far you zoom in on the face of a digital clock, there's you know nothing that says it's between two numbers. The data is always discrete, right? It only displays numbers. So, um, again, I want to ask you guys this. You already answered it, sort of, Tish, mm-hmm. uh, but what is faster to tell time? Which one is faster to you guys? Digital. Digital, you think, Tish? Yeah. What, what about you? Everyone says digital? Yeah. I, I okay. would, well... To tell, I mean, analog's constantly moving, so therefore that might be more accurate. So by the time you tell what time it is in digital, you may be, like, late on it. A lot of digital clocks have the seconds, though, so it it gives you live feedback. Yeah. Yeah, well, remember, again, so those seconds, those are still discrete points in time, right? In other words, if it shows you a second, it's only that second for a single instance of time. And by the time you've looked at it, you know, it's... You know, it's physically changed time, but the actual second doesn't change. So it's still showing discrete points. Whereas if you have a really nice, you know, analog clock, it moves smoothly and continuously. So, but yeah, you guys all pretty much said digital, um, and I think for me too, it's it's digital. But let me let me let me uh, run this by you. So according to cognitive fit theory, the least cognitive effort is required when the presentation of the info you're looking at matches the intended cognitive use, or in other words, what your brain is thinking in. So one way of looking at it is like this. If you want to know how much time is elapsed from a certain time, it may be quicker for some people to look at an analog clock, because then you can quickly see the position of a hand and equate that to an elapsed time. Whereas if you want to maybe set an alarm for an exact time, it may be more useful to look at a digital clock since you have that exact time in your head and your brain is expecting that, it's thinking in an actual time, and that's the least cognitive effort since that's <clears throat> the least cognitive effort is required since that presentation of the info you're looking at matches the intended cognitive use. So that's a lot of uh, mumbo jumbo here, but I want to push more on that real quick. Uh, a possibly bigger factor that determines what your brain thinks in is what it learned in, right? So our parents and grandparents, they probably learned to tell time with analog clocks. So their brain thinks of time, gra- graphical representation, i.e. analog clocks. Whereas our generation, we typically use digital clocks, and so our brain thinks about time in a numerical, symbolic way. Thus, digital clocks might be faster for us in all circumstances. So to each their own. I will say... As you, as you guys know, I drive on the racetrack, and my car has both an analog speedo and a digital speedo. And when you're in the middle of a corner and you want to see your apex speed, it's quicker for me to look down and understand the analog readout versus the digital one for a quick uh, quick glance. You guys you guys following so far? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this whole analog digital thing, it can, of course, be applied to tons of other, tons of other areas, for instance. So... Video, uh, analog video is film or tape, and digital is just, you know, digital video recording with a, with a digital sensor like we have on our phones. And audio, of course, Tish, you mentioned this, but audio, analog audio started out as wax rolls with Thomas Edison, and then it transformed to tapes and vinyl, and now mm-hmm. we have digital audio recording devices in DAWs and stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so uh, you, you could expand any one of these areas and make it into a bunch of episodes. And I'm, like I said, Tish, I'm sure you'd have a bunch of to say. But I want to move on to the main topic of this show. 
and that is analog computational devices, which pretty much sounds like the nerdiest thing in the entire world, but it, it is pretty cool. You don't have to be an, a nerd to, to think about it. So <clears throat> we all know what computers are, right? Mm-hmm. Some digital device that does some thing or solves some task, and not just computers, but pretty much all electronics nowadays are digital, right? Yes. You got phones, alarm clocks, cars, appliances. They all have some digital electronics inside. But not long ago, in the grand scheme of things, the most powerful computers in the world were analog computational devices, not digital. Actually, since the dawn of humanity, the most powerful devices were analog, not digital. It was pretty much up until the mass production of uh, microelectronics in the 60s or so. But yeah, so the oldest example of an analog we can call it a computer. It's, it's a mechanical device, but we, we can call it that. Um, the oldest example dates back to ancient Greece. And they had an astronomical clock. And it just predicted the paths of celestial bodies like moons and you know suns and stars and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not hard to think about, right? It's just a system of gears that rotate at different rates and line up with the motion of the planets. I mean, like I said, that's technically a mechanical computer. So this is after the sundial. Yeah, the sundial is an, it's a another analog system because it's analogous to the passage of time. It's a smooth, continuous uh, thing without discrete points. Um, so yeah, there there is a bunch of mechanical devices made by humans that predict the paths of things in space for the next thousands of years, or I guess one thousand. So from like two hundred BC up until uh, you know the Renaissance, fourteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. They were making these really complex mechanical devices that you and I would consider a, a calculator, um, but it could, ju- it could just perform a bunch of intense calculations. Um, and they, they got a really complex, and eventually they were able to perform calculus, like finding integrals and solving differential equations, which is you know obviously pretty complex stuff. But it was literally just for some from some uh, brass balls and levers and graph paper. I mean, it was physical things that were able to calculate these really complex uh, equation. So it's pretty cool. Now, one of the hardest and very important problems that humans needed to solve was the prediction of the tides. Tish, do you know what a tide is? A tide? Um, a tide is when is usually when the ocean <laughs> whenever like a body of water like part of the ocean reaches the beach. Is that what a tide is? No, so Tide is a soap that you use to clean your clothes. Oh. I was going to say that. <laughs> and make, sh- make sure no, you yeah. do not consume those. We do not endorse that here on the <laughs> Uninformed Podcast. You can if you want, but we highly, highly recommend that you don't. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, Tish, you got it. So there's high tides and low tides, obviously. Yeah. And there's a bunch of factors that go into them, like geographic location, position of the moon, time of day, yeah. and a bunch more. And it's you know it's pretty much... In, in, nearly impossible to predict correctly, and th- that was one of the biggest things because you know before roads and uh, and uh, trucks and all that, the biggest uh, vessel used to ship anything across the world were, were boats. And if you uh, sail a boat, you need to know the tides. So there have been a lot of instances that uh, the lack of prediction of the tides screwed over historic figures over the years. Take for instance Napoleon Bonaparte for his. Um, his men almost died due to a miscalculation of the tides. And, yeah, that's just one example, but there's a bunch of sailors that lost their ships while docking due to miscalculations of the tide. Needless to say, it's, it's, it was a big issue. And, you know, none of us think about it now, mm. but throughout pretty much all of time, that was a huge issue. 
since ships are so important to human uh, economies. Well, in the late 1800s, an analog device, so it's, you know, again with a device with, you know, gears and levers and all that stuff, it was designed and built to incorporate all of those factors that I said go into predicting the tide, like the moon position, the earth position, daytime, nighttime, all this stuff. There's a bunch, there's like, there's like 26 factors now, I think, but in 1800s, they used 10. Um, Anyways, he built this machine, this guy, took all those factors in, built this machine, and it correctly predicted the tides for nearly a century, which is a huge deal. Hmm. It was a huge machine also. I mean, it took up the size of a big room, and it had tons of moving bits and pieces. Um, But fun fact, it actually played a role in the outcome of uh, World War II. So, um, (laughs) Interesting. The Axis powers knew that the invasion of Normandy would probably take place during high tide to minimize the amount of time the Allies were on the beach. So the Axis powers, they decided to put a bunch of traps and uh, explosives onto the beach so that when high tide came, those traps would be underwater, they'd be invisible, and then the Allies would come through, you know, get exploded, get trapped, all that. Well, the Allies found out, and stop me if you've heard this before, but they had to quickly calculate for... um, for the low tide and so they would change up their plans so they calculated for the low tide at all of their uh, beach locations which I think there were like five um, and they each one of those locations varied over an hour um, so they had to you know figure out all these different uh, different uh, new strategies for invading the beach mm. um, and all this is just so they could see those traps and explosives and then take them out before storming the beach and they did they did just that and the rest is history obviously you guys know about World War Two. Um, I had never heard that before, but I find that yeah. extremely fascinating. There's so much cool strategy and like art of war that went into World War II. Uh, so oh yeah, tons. That I see. That's something I would never even think of, and yeah, you know, that's why I'm not a general. <laughs> but that that I think that's really cool. Yeah, there's tons. There's tons. There's a bunch of other examples here um, of these analog devices that could figure out all these different things. Um, that helped win the war. Like another example was, uh, you know, there's a lot of dive bombing planes, um, like kamikaze, for instance, or just regular planes in general that would dive bomb. And the gunners, those anti-aircraft gunners, they couldn't track the plane fast enough. Like a human couldn't do it. And so nowadays we have, there's in the engineering world, there's a whole system of controls to, you know, control something that moves and tracks a target. Well, back then they didn't have computers like we do now, digital computers to do all that. But they did invent an analog computer to do just that. An analog mechanical, I don't know, I'm sure if it was mechanical or not, but it was an analog device and that it controlled the gun and allowed a human to track the position uh, of these uh, dive bombing planes and, you know, shoot them out of the sky. That was just another example there. But That's pretty cool, <clears throat> the, too. The point is that all these analog machines, they were the peak of computational power for pretty much all of human history. And we probably didn't know about them, like you just mentioned. And they did some of the most important things. Um, it's it's just crazy that they don't they don't really get a lot of recognition. So this is all pretty much, like I said, all throughout time until the 1960s or so, when the uh, the mass production of the transistor and microelectronics came into play. So basically, these digital devices with the transistor, they were able to do the same calculations as the big analog ones, but they could do it more predictably, consistently, and cheaply. Plus, they could be made as a general-purpose device instead of a highly custom analog one. So they were just all around better. They were cheaper, they could be made uh, faster, and they were uh, yeah, more general-purpose. So I just want to clarify here because it's, it's getting a little confusing. Um, so there are two things going on here. 
there are mechanical and electrical devices and there are analog and digital devices and they're independent so you could have a mix of either two of those so you could have like an analog mechanical machine like that tide prediction machine or like the ancient greek gear planetary system and you can have electrical digital devices like everything we have today but you could also have the mix of the two like an electrical analog device which actually we'll talk about later so the mass production of of these uh transistor and all these microelectronics that was pretty much the death of analog devices for high power computing to add insult to injury every two years the power the power of a device given its size it doubled all the way from 1970 till now that's that's called moore's law um and actually nowadays that law is starting to break down it's it's uh it used to be every two years it would double but now it's not but uh but anyways yeah you see this fundamental building block of one of these digital devices the transistor it's nearing the size of individual atoms now. That's how small they are, you know. And they start off as a vacuum tube, which kind of looked like a little light bulb, so maybe a couple inches tall. Now that same device, because of microprocessing and all all the the smallification of everything, it's down to two nanometers, which means it's like ten atoms thick, up from a tiny light bulb to something that's ten atoms thick. So it's extremely small. And um, that, like I said, that's kind of putting us into a wall here because it's kind of uh, getting to the size of atoms, so we can't really double them every two years now. Um, so it's breaking up Moore's law. But, anyways, that leads me back to the beginning, where I said that this is sort of a follow-up on a previous episode I did, and this is really a continuation of the AI art episode because now that there have been some updates, I'm sorry. There have been some updates in the AI-generated art world since we recorded that last episode in um, October, I think, of 2022. But the fact remains that creating one of these AI-generated images is very computationally intensive, which just means that it needs a lot of horsepower to be generated. And so, like I just mentioned, we're nearing the limits of this law that says that we, we can double the power every two years. Since we're getting so small, we're getting to the size of atoms now, that scale, that law is pretty much breaking down. And so we're kind of nearing the stress limits of all the devices nowadays for this AI technology. Now we see a switch because we're entering the age of analog computers again. You see, even though we ditched them in favor of easier to produce general purpose digital devices back in the 60s, these analog computers can be better suited for a specialized fast process like running AI in neural networks. It's just like records, man. Records weren't... They were cool, then they went out of style, and they're coming back, baby. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Except now they're extremely miniaturized, <laughs> these, uh, these devices. But yeah, so there are, in fact, startups right now, like little companies that are producing small computer chips, but they're not digital. They're analog chips, which, you know, just like basically a miniature version of that tide predicting, tide predicting machine from 200 years ago. So the cool thing is, is that our brains are digital because neurons in our brains, they either fire or they don't, so they're discrete. But our brains are also analog because our world is analog and they take all that information in and process it continuously. So the question is, could it be that the future of AI, which is just you know getting machine to think like a human, means getting it to think in both digital and analog, just like humans do? That's the question. But yeah, who knows? Only time will tell. I, for one, am excited to see the future of those little startup companies that I mentioned a second ago. But uh, but what do you guys think? Everything is, uh, history is a circle, I guess, right? Things are coming back and uh, 
what we thought were outdated 100 years ago might be the future of solving our uh, next breakthrough in technologies. That's crazy because I, I had a question and you kind of fault like answered my question. But, you know, I was going to say if you go all the way back in time, uh, you know, back to the time metaphor we were talking about, uh, you know, we had the sundial or a, a stick in the sand to kind of tell the time. And then we moved on to analog, which was more like mechanical based and then digital, which was computer based. And so I was going to ask, what do you see as being the next step? But you answer that by saying it's uh, we're going back to analog. Do you foresee like, you know, I, I you may not know the answer to this. It may be an impossible question. But are there any other options out there, or is it just kind of these two and trying to find, you know, a, a working balance? Well, it's it's pretty much analog or digital. Those are just like uh, general names for something that's either continuous or just has you know steps in it. So those are the only two options really. But I. Uh, I would not say the future is all analog because um, digital devices are really, you know, they had an explosion in the past 70 years or whatever. They're really good. They're really cheap at uh, doing general purpose stuff, like without a special purpose. These a these uh, AI analog chips, they're specially made for that. You know, they're very highly customized, so they, they wouldn't be good for a general purpose device, um, you know, like a smartphone for, or a computer, for instance, but for like uh, a neural net like a, a computer that just works on AI, these analog devices are really good for. And they're faster. They consume way less power. It's it's really incredible what they can do. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, you know, I, even from like our parents' generation, you know, probably 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, they had analog watches. Then early 2000s, late 90s, you know, it was digital. Now analog's coming back. Uh, my question to you, Ethan, is: Do you ever see a point where we get to sundial watches? Will we go back that far? <laughs> They're a thing. You can get a sundial watch. <laughs> it, that doesn't make much sense because uh, if you move around, it pretty much goes <laughs> useless as soon as you move. But uh, it's still cool to look at. Yeah, when I sit in my office, it's it's uh, noon all day long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, is there's there... um, there's a lot of stuff there, but. Uh, I don't know, it's just crazy because uh, the whole history repeating itself kind of thing, you know. And especially, I like the fact that uh, our brains, our brains are not only digital, they're not only analog, they're kind of a mix of both. And if we really want to go forward with, uh, you know, technologies in the future, it might be a mix of that. It might be making a system that is more similar to our brain in that it's both analog and digital, a hybrid system. Is there currently a universal... Uh one that is used such as do most places right now currently use digital um or is there yeah, every, a... every electronic device nowadays is, is digital like binary you know like ones and zeros and all that stuff pretty much everything is hey ethan um when you were saying calculations in the very beginning i thought you were gonna lean into the abacus is that how you say it yeah i guess i say it. yeah so isn't yeah, that a an old pretty much like the first version of a calculator from yeah, the greeks yeah, right? exactly yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I thought you were going to lean into there. But to me, like, I always thought that device was interesting because of, um, from what I heard, it's so accurate. And uh, as it evolved, obviously, it um, evolved into a primitive calculator after that. Um, I don't know the exact name. But then eventually it went to the electronic calculator and then, you know, get more fancy with the computer and stuff. So, um yeah, I think it's pretty fascinating on how all that technology evolves and how that would incorporate to AI and 
moving forward because I I do believe it's going to be a mix of digital and analog, um, and I do believe that it would be uh, it would have to be comparable to humans. So it, like I said, it would be a mix of digital and analog moving forward. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 cool stuff to think about. But um, so I'll leave you guys with this. I know this is a topic, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but if you are at home and you are listening to it, definitely check out um, Kelvin's uh, tie prediction machine, the machine I was mentioning in, in the middle there, and see what it looks like because you can see actual pictures of it, and it's crazy. I mean, hmm. it's high-tech in its day. There's, It's a massive machine with all these brass balls and spinning disks and all that, and they integrate and they solve differential equations. They add together sinusoids, so it's really cool. But um, Hey, Ethan. Yeah, where do they keep this machine? Like back, um, like because no when they protected probably some museum. Or, oh, in the museum. Okay, but before that, like when they were trying to predict the tide, uh, for ships and like predicting wind and all that too. Like where would yeah. they house it? Was it like say back in England? And then once they yeah. knew which the the way of the tide, and even after yeah. that, like you were saying for World War Two, they housed yeah. it at a certain facility, and then they were like, okay, this is our point of attack and all that stuff yeah lord kelvin was english i'm pretty sure okay don't quote me on that but i'm pretty sure he was english and then so i believe it was stored in england okay gotcha. but I'm, I'm sure there was multiple uh multiple versions of it but the thing with so the thing with analog devices is um so okay so think about this let's just take a really simple mechanical analog device versus a mechanical digital device a calculator right so you can make like you can make these with Legos, but like a mechanical analog Lego adder, like a calculator that just adds, mm-hmm. it, you you can have two wheels and they push a gear so that when you turn one wheel a little bit and you turn the other wheel a little bit, the third wheel moves the addition of both wheels. Right? That makes sense. Yeah. And then for the digital one, um, you'd have to th- work in some system of like binary, and then if you pull like you know one lever this way, one lever that way, that's that symbolizes a one. And then you can add a different one, and then the output should be two. You know, same thing, but mm-hmm. it's digital instead. But it's also mechanical. Um, in that case, the the digital one will always just output two, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's discrete. There's not points next to two, either slightly above it or slightly below it. It's just it's either in or out. It's binary. Whereas the analog one, if you turn the wheel a little bit and turn the second wheel uh, some other amount, the third wheel, every time you do it, the third wheel is going to move slightly a different amount. Because, you know, there's just manufacturing defects. There's tiny little small microscopic differences in all the parts. And so you can never get the exact answer twice. Mm-hmm. So with analog devices, they're non-repeatable. Yeah. That's 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 one of the things. So, like, j- just because of human, you know, just because of the real world, you can never get the same answer twice. So yeah. all that to say, if we did have multiple of those tie prediction machines each one of them would have a slightly different answer. Now, I don't know if, you know, if they manufactured it so well that the differences would be so small that it wouldn't make a difference or, or not, but uh, but that's just a fun thing to think about. Hmm. Yes, sir. But, uh, all right, yeah, so that's it, gentlemen. I hope uh, this is kind of an in-the-weeds episode, so um, hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you're a bit more informed um, about 200-year-old obscure machines that helped save World War II. Um, but yeah, if you did, please leave a like, and if you didn't, just cancel the episode, don't leave a dislike, um, but yeah, enjoy yourselves, have a good week, and we'll see you next time. Peace out. Keep it fresh. Bye. I don't know what to do with my hands. Keep it fresh. (laughs) Rock and roll.